John chapter 13, Lord Jesus, thank you for your word to us and thank you that we get to as truly as humble servants be so loved by our, by our God and by our Savior. All the songs we sang this morning, Lord, so encouraging to us because they're songs of truth, but we sing them in worship to you. We remain in awe of you. We adore you. We love you so much, and we are so amazed by the things that you do and the way that you do them. And even looking back over 2,000 years at the things you did that still speak to us today, and I, I ask, Holy Spirit, you would speak these truths to us. Align us with our Savior, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, you'll bless this time this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. John chapter 13 Verse one, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end or to the uttermost. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God, was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself and then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Among the things that I love about the Gospel of John are the many insights into the mind of Christ. See, while the other Gospels give us the teachings of Christ and the actions of, of Christ Jesus, John, more than any other, takes us into his mentality, tells us what he was thinking, tells us what Jesus knew, what he was aware of at certain moments in his life. And here at the last Passover, on the very night of his betrayal, we don't have to guess what was on his mind. We don't have to wonder, as I think we would, what was Jesus thinking? Where was his head that night? Where were his thoughts? What was pinging around in his brain? We don't have to guess. We know. We know, as of verse one, that Jesus knew that his hour had come. Six times that phrase is repeated in different form throughout the gospel. That his hour had come. Remember back in John chapter two, he said to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He would repeat that through his ministry until the very last chapter when suddenly he realized the hour was upon him when those Greeks wanted to come and meet Jesus. And he knew the times of the Gentiles were now upon him. Well, this is now front and center in his mind. He knew that the hour had come, that the hour is here on that night. In verse two, we know that he knew that the devil had set betrayal into the heart of Jesus, or, or Judas. Into the heart of Judas. Jesus knew that. Jesus at the table that night knew Judas sitting there, and we think likely right next to him, was ready to betray him, had already betrayed him in his heart. In verse three, we recognize that Jesus knew get this, that the Father had put all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God. He knew that and was going back to God. He knew all of this in that moment and he knew something else too. He knew that he loved these guys. 
He just loved these guys. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John's moniker for himself, writes, having loved those, his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And we start to recognize on this passionate night that there is a love that knows no bounds, no limitations. You need to get that this morning. If you get nothing else, understand that the love of God in Christ Jesus for you knows no limitations. There is no length to which he would not go, has not gone out of love for you and for me. And Jesus knew all of this. He knew amazingly that the Father had given all things into his hands, and yet Jesus takes up a hand towel. This is so contraindicated by the moment and even by the setup of what Jesus knew. Verse four tells us, that he got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. He wraps the towel, by the way, understand, he wraps the towel around his waist, not out of modesty, but out of functionality. So I want you to get a picture of how Jesus was dressed here because he's not standing there disgracefully, half naked, wrapping the towel so that he can cover himself. No, we're told that he laid aside his garments. Literally, he lays aside his garments. The word garments is chematia, which means outer garments, which is what they would wear. They would wear a linen garment underneath, a, a tunic that would come down to the knees or below, and then they wore an outer garment or robe that was the typical attire of the day, even for the, the poor or the less wealthy, they had that outer garment. So when Jesus lays aside his garments, his chematia, he's laying aside the outer garment, he still has on the common linen tunic, the chiton. The chiton is on Jesus' body, and this is important because the chiton was the common attire of a house slave. This is what, if you had a slave, if you were well off enough to have a slave wandering around the house, cleaning, cooking, doing the business, they would wear the chiton. They didn't wear the outer robe. They were doing too much work. So the outer robe laid aside, they would walk around wearing this common attire. Suddenly, Jesus, Lord of the feast, is dressed like a slave, wraps the towel around his waist because he's gonna need the towel. Verse five says, then he pours water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And by the way, I, that sounded a little weird the way I read that, that I read that he pours water into the basin. John, John does this from time to time and he will especially do it here and he'll do it later in chapter 20 in the telling of the resurrection. John is so immediately present that he writes like a vivid witness. And what I mean by that is the word gets and lays and pours and comes. If you go back to uh, right there in verse four, it's literally in the Greek he gets up from supper and lays aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he pours water into the basin. It's all present tense. Verse six, even, he comes to Simon Peter and he says to him, John is there in the moment, even as he writes this some 50, perhaps 60 years after the fact, using this present tense device to pull us immediately into the story. Jesus is doing this right in front of us right now. And again, in verse five, he pours the water into the basin, begins to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 27, who is greater, 
The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines, but I am among you as one who serves? Now, when you read that, you probably typically think of one serving the meal, serving the dinner, bringing the dishes and the food and setting it before you. We don't often think about the one who serves being the one down on his knees washing our feet. But Jesus says, who's greater? Twelve apostles sitting around the table reclining or the one who serves? This is the sign that now is going to precede the final instructions. Mention Wednesday night, John 14, 15, 16, and 17. 17 being a prayer. 14 through 16 is Jesus giving final instruction to the apostles on the night of his betrayal, preparing them for what is about to happen and beyond that, preparing them for the last days. How to live in the last days, how they're gonna function, how they're going to be without him there with them by the Holy Spirit. And he's gonna teach marvelous things. But you might remember that in John's gospel, the way he lays it out is he tends to give a sign first and then he gives application or teaching related to that sign. John chapter six, feeding of the 5,000. And then the rest of the chapter is Jesus teaching on the bread of heaven, the bread of life, or John chapter nine, where he heals the blind man. And then the rest of that chapter, we hear application of who really is blind and who is not. And you see this pattern throughout the gospel? Well, I, I suggest you apply it right here. That the washing of the feet is the final sign before the teaching of how we are to be at the end of the age. Washing of the feet followed by the application of final instruction. This to me is the most remarkable sign. Now, it's not a sign as in supernatural. There's nothing supernatural here about what Jesus does. In fact, it's one of the most natural things that he does, and yet it transcends anything that we might have expected out of God with us. Jesus, the one who has all things in his hands. And what does he do? He picks up a towel. That just is so mind-boggling. And he doesn't do something supernatural. He does something natural. Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish preacher, said, knowing that he came from God and went to God, and that even when he was kneeling there before these men, the Father had given all things into his hands, what did he do? Triumph? Show his majesty? Flash his power? Demand service? No girded himself with a towel and washed his disciples' feet. In this world, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But when you are Jesus, absolute power causes you to absolutely serve and love. I think in part, Jesus does this to address what is a growing issue, an obvious issue among these disciples. Sometimes it's an issue among us. I think we can safely say that the disciples knew they were part of something big. They were on to something. They were the chosen few. They were the ones on Jesus' team. They had the inside scoop. They knew something the world did not know. And they were following along Jesus. And they followed him because they truly believed in him. And that must have been a heady experience, at least at times. Is your Christianity ever a heady experience? I hope not, but I confess for myself, sometimes it is. Sometimes you just look at the world around and go, they have no idea. I know. I know what's coming. I know what's gonna happen. And it's kind of easy to take pride in the knowing. 
I've read the prophecies. I've got the updates. I know what's coming, and this sorry, sad world doesn't have a clue. It's not the right heart. But any kind of power can corrupt. And here are the disciples in Mark chapter nine. They're on the way to Capernaum and their entire conversation is about who's the greatest among themselves. Wow. We're told in Matthew 18 and Luke 22 that they actually asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Duh, Jesus. But they have to ask the question. Matthew chapter 20, Mark chapter 10, the sons of Zebedee decide to get out ahead of the others and come to Jesus with a request. Well, actually, uh, mama did it. Matthew tells us that their mother comes to advocate preferential treatment for her boys. Can one sit on the right and one sit on the left when you come in to your kingdom? She's asking for the two top tier seats next to Jesus And of course, you know the story when the rest of the 12 heard? They were indignant. Why? Because they didn't think to ask for themselves. I'm pretty convinced. (laughs) How'd these guys think of it before me? They got their cards in early. They, 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 they made their reservations. Well, Mark chapter, 11, or chapter 10, verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. The word servant there is diakonos. It's where we get deacon, minister. The great one needs to serve. The great one needs to be a minister. But Jesus pushes it further. He says, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And he uses the word doulos, the lowest form of servant, the bond servant. You want to be great? You want to be first? You want a top tier seat in the kingdom? Be a slave. Be a slave. Well, why, Jesus? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In John uh, chapter 13, the opening four verses, this brief four-verse story, literally the whole story is given us in those first four verses. And then we find out more as Jesus goes forward. But it leads off this stunning pre-fulfillment pre-fulfillment by a few hours of Jesus as the servant of the Lord, Messiah, the servant of the Lord. This is a prophecy that Jesus begins to fulfill right here as he wraps the towel around his waist, the servant of the Lord, that the bondservant of God we see in Jesus. Go back to Isaiah, and I want you to see the prophecy. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. All the way back to Isaiah, about the middle of your Bibles. And we're gonna stay in Isaiah just for a few minutes. So go there. I love doing this when we, when we studied Isaiah before, when we, when we get to again, Lord willing. I love going through these songs. Isaiah, as he's bringing the prophecy, and we're from Isaiah 40 on forward, it's kind of called the book of comfort because it's all about comforting his people and the promises to come and the promise of Messiah. And there are five songs in this section of the Bible. Call them the servant songs of Isaiah. And chapter 42, verse one, begins the first one. 
Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. That servant song number one, speaking of this servant of the Lord who would be understood as Messiah, the servant of the Lord. Skip on ahead in Isaiah to chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. Where you come to the second servant song that picks up in verse one. I'm going to just read a couple of verses here. Isaiah 49 verse five. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. Pause right there and recognize for those Jewish people who say that the servant of the Lord is Israel, it's impossible because the servant of the Lord's job is to bring Israel back to the Lord. He's doing that. He's calling Jacob. He's calling the people of Israel back to God, their father. And he says in verse six, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Servant song number two. This servant is not Israel, but he is one who comes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We'll skip on forward to chapter 50. Chapter 50, verse four, the next servant song, the third one, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. That's wonderful. That's a great prescription, by the way, as a, for a follower of Jesus, to, to awaken every morning listening to the Lord, listening to how I can serve, how I can bring a cheerful word to a weary one, but it's talking about Jesus the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. Skip ahead to chapter 52, verse 13. Chapter 52, verse 13, the fourth of the servant songs, and it runs literally from here all the way through chapter 53. I won't read all of it, but verse 13 of chapter 52 begins, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. It's said that Jesus was so beaten at the cross that he was unrecognizable. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told then, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Skip down to verse four of chapter 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, 
But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Don't miss the fact that this is the work of the servant of the Lord. The one dressed in linen like a house slave, the one with the towel wrapped around his waist, this is the attitude and behavior of Messiah. In verse 11 of chapter 53, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Chapter 61, the fifth and final servant song of Isaiah. Chapter 61 of Isaiah begins in verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And you know, if you are a Bible student, that is how Jesus kicked off his public ministry. The reading from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth, this verse, he put down the scroll, he sat down, all eyes were fixed on him, and he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's all about me. The servant songs, five of them, five is the number of grace in the Bible, five servant songs in Isaiah, five songs all speaking of Messiah as the servant of the Lord. And again, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The fulfillment of the servant Messiah was not, by the way, in water dripping from a towel. It was in blood dripping from his hands and feet. But he came to serve. Philippians 2, verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a doulos, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance of man, uh, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now we're gonna get there, but first, the amazing love of God in Christ Jesus was not above stooping down to wash feet. And this is such a vital thing to comprehend in, this, in the very nature of Jesus, in the heart of Jesus how low he was willing to stoop, that nothing was beneath him where your salvation and mine are concerned. Nothing was beneath him where loving his followers was concerned. In Middle Eastern hospitality and culture, especially in the first century, water jars stood at the entrance of the homes. Many of you are aware of this, the water jar for the washing of the feet. In the wealthier homes, a servant would stand by as well with a towel draped over the arm or wrapped around the waist, ready to serve the guests as they came in to wash the feet or to wash the master's feet as he arrived. Barclay tells us that the roads of Samaria and Judea, both unsurfaced and unclean, in dry weather, they were inches deep in dust. In the wet weather, they were liquid mud. So the idea of foot washing as a person came into the home was very important. Thin leather sandals, not the oboes, canes, merrells, or hokas that we wear today. These thin leather straps 
that went over the top and held this, this thin leather onto the bottom of the foot, that's what they wore. They would walk into the house with the feet covered in thick dust and mud and whatever else the traveler had stepped in, splattered up on the calves, and the feet needed washing. So Jesus here this night positions himself in the lowliest, most menial posture of a bond slave. On the night of his betrayal, when he knew all these other things, this is what he chose to do. Something else just to note back in John chapter 13, it tells us in the beginning of verse two that during supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray him. But it was during supper that Jesus knew all these things and got up from supper. They're in the midst of eating. You know what that means? It means they all came in, settled themselves, relaxed around the table, and started eating with dirty, stinking feet. And no one thought to do anything about it. Three things to consider here this morning of what Jesus is doing as he washes their feet lovingly, tenderly, from man to man around the table, and this would have been incredibly awkward and uncomfortable for these disciples. Not that their feet were being washed, that was common, but that their rabbi was doing it. It's one thing for a disciple to wash the feet of the rabbi. In fact, that would be a show of honor to the rabbi and subservience and a servant of the rabbi. For a disciple to wash a rabbi's feet, sure, that could happen, but the rabbi did not wash the feet of his disciples. This never happened. Jesus does it. Why? Three reasons. Number one, to exemplify spiritual cleansing. There's a picture here of spiritual cleansing. Read on, verse six. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Bible students, hereafter is the phrase metatauta. You'll understand after these things. So your understanding's not here now. It's coming, Peter. I think that was common for Peter. <laughs> Peter said to him in verse eight, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head, just go for it. <laughs> I love his exuberance. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Recognize while this is going on, Judas is still there. While he's washing their feet, he's washing his feet as well. Spiritual cleansing. In verse 10, Jesus refers to two kinds of spiritual cleansing. The full bath, he says, bathed, he who has bathed, and that word bathed in the Greek is luo, it's complete bathing, it's head to toe, it's synonymous with baptizo, with baptism, but luo would be the common word used for, you need to go take a luo, you need a bath, you smell, you're filthy, you're dirty, and this idea of luo, this full bath, this bathing, Jesus uses the word as a picture of spiritual cleansing. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, 
You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. Let me ask you here this morning, have you been washed by faith? How many people here have been washed by faith? Just see a show of hands. Okay, I expected that. You don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder how many people here have been water baptized? Now, I asked the question, not really looking around, so I didn't see if someone said I've been saved, washed in faith, but someone didn't say I've been water baptized. If if you say the one, you ought to be able to say the other because they really do go hand in hand. The number of hands up should be the same. If your hand went up in faith, yes, I was washed by the blood of Jesus in faith, in his grace. Well, it ought to also go up again, your hand in action. Yes, I, I was baptized, both. We have this weird thing in the church, and this really goes back decades, but this split, this break between faith and the act of baptism. And the act of baptism is just an act of obedience that outwardly reveals my faith. And yes, it is something we were called to do, we were invited to do, to be washed, to have this picture of a total bathing. And it's not the water that saves us, we always say that, and yet Jesus commanded it. If you believe in me, if you trust me for salvation, show people be baptized. And if you haven't, the water is nice and tepid this morning, so it's perfect for you. (laughs) But Jesus says this, if you've been bathed, you don't have to do any more but wash your feet. You need to wash your feet. See, bathing, luo, goes before the journey. The washing Jesus does here happens along the journey. The bathing is a one-time deal. Just be bathed and you're good to go. The washing of the feet is over and over and over. So you have the full bath, luo, and then you have the foot washing where Jesus uses the word wash. It's a different word. It's the word nipto. Nipto. Just, just remember nipto, wash the toe. You get the idea. Wash the feet. It, it literally means it's the word that they use to cleanse the hands, to nipto the hands or nipto the feet or nipto the face. It's it's a brief washing. How many of us have been washed for the journey, bathed by faith, and then in the waters of baptism, but yet you find your feet soiled and sullied by the world? Do you ever just feel grimy? I remember the first time I went to Las Vegas, how grimy I felt. No offense to those who are from or live in Las Vegas, but I remember walking on the strip and just kind of feeling greasy and smoky and gross. Someone handed me a pamphlet and that didn't help. (laughs) It's that sense that I'm on the journey. I've been washed and yet sin keeps happening all around me, sometimes by me, and my feet get dirty. So here's the point. Jesus says if you bathe, you don't need to bathe again, but you need to wash your feet. And we need that foot washing over and over and over, that spiritual cleaning, which we get, by the way, in the washing of the word and in the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's a wonderful promise God's given us and the blessing in his word that he's given us to be washed in the word again and again, our feet cleansed from the dirt of the world. I, come, I love coming in on Wednesday night. I adore Wednesday nights. Gathering together in the time of worship is so precious and so sweet, but I love being in the Word because I feel like midweek I'm needing a foot washing again. I can't make it to next Sunday. I need some foot washing now. And that's what the Word does. In fact, I gotta read this to you. I got the coolest, heard the coolest quote. If the Word of God doesn't mean what it says, who can say what it means? 
If the word of God doesn't mean what it says, who can say what it means? For those who allegorize the word of God, take the word of God and make it say whatever they want or cut out bits and pieces of it or take their favorite parts and ignore the parts they don't like, if you're gonna do that, how can you say that any of it means anything? I don't even know what it means. But if we take the word at face value, if we just read the word as God gave it to us in his wisdom, just take it literally, read it literally, there is a washing that takes place, a cleansing. Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, which we see beginning in this story, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That begins with our bathing at the outset of faith, but it continues as we are washed in the word in an ongoing basis. We need this word, folks. More and more today at the end of the age where lies and deception are the norm Who's to say what we're being told on any media source is true? Well, Rick, I listen to Fox News. How do you know they're telling you the truth? Well, because they're conservative. Great. That means nothing. Do they believe in Jesus? Are they followers of Jesus? Are they disciples of Christ? Is that the presentation? It's a secular news company, just like CNN is secular or MSLS, MSNBC is secular or all of these sources. My friends, the point is this. I'm not saying choose one, that you shouldn't choose one over the other, whatever. I'm saying be careful because everything we hear in the world is subject to lies and deceit. This word is not. We just take God at his word and our feet get washed. And we're good to go on the journey again. And by the way, it's not just the word of God, but it's also this amazing renewing work of the Holy Spirit that is ongoing. Titus chapter three, verse five says that he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing, note this, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. We don't need the regeneration of the Holy Spirit over and over and over. When you have been washed by the washing of regeneration, your heart regenerated, you've been born again. You're not born again, again, and again, and again, and again. You're born again. But you know what we do need? Renewal. We need the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. That is the ongoing work. We need to get our feet wet and washed again. And again, over and over. Why? Why this picture in foot washing of not having been bathed, that's been done, but having our feet cleansed again and again. Why foot washing? Because we walk down dirty paths. That is this life. The paths are thick dust or liquid mud. And that's where we go every day. And yet, at the same time, while we're walking in this dirt, the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, Paul, talking about armoring up, says, having shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Isaiah 52, verse 7, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Beautiful feet wearing the gospel of peace, walking in mud. 
See why we gotta keep getting clean, clean feet? Why we need to have them washed over and over? There is nothing, nothing lovely or beautiful about dirty feet. And if we think that we can shod our feet with the gospel of peace, walk in the filth of the world and not have it affect our message, we're missing something here. Who's gonna listen to the good news if I'm tracking mud and filth into their home? If I'm carrying that stuff along, let me put it to you this way, the cleanliness of our behavior has a direct effect on the purity of our message, the gospel. No one's gonna listen to the gospel coming from someone whose feet are dirty and doesn't really seem to care. Someone who wanders into the house, reclines at the table, sticks up their muddy, dripping feet and doesn't even know and then tries to talk about purity. It doesn't work. We gotta have our feet cleansed over and over and over. Our hearts, our spirits renewed by the spirit again and again. So we have the full bath as Jesus describes and then we have the foot washing which is ongoing and continual. And tragically in this picture of spiritual cleansing, Jesus has to say as he does in verse 10, and you are clean, but not all. Not all of you. He knew the one who was betraying him for this reason. He said, not all of you are clean. Can I make an interpretation here? The reason Judas was not clean is because Judas had never been spiritually washed. That Judas never gave himself to Jesus. He went with him, was called by Jesus, recognized the calling, followed him and went out on the trek and within embedded there among the disciples was one who never really believed. The others would struggle with belief and faith and comprehension, but they gave themselves to the ministry. They gave themselves to Jesus. They loved and followed him. They believed in him and with every passing day, more and more, they truly believed. They had a long way to go, all of the disciples, to learn and to grow and ultimately to die as martyrs. Judas never believed. Now, this is just my assumption why he is not clean. He's in the group. He's on the team. He showed up faithfully at church. But he never believed. And brothers and sisters, as we sit here this morning, you need to recognize that God knows the heart. It's not the outward behavior he's looking at. It's not the attendance record. It's not showing up. It's not being able, as we've said before, to, to stand before God and say, well, I was a faithful Methodist my whole life. So, you weren't called to be a faithful Methodist. You were called to walk with Jesus. You weren't called to be a faithful Baptist. You were called to walk with Jesus. You weren't called to be a faithful Bridgeite. That's just a weird name anyway. I'm thankful for that, you know. I'm a Bridgeite. Yeah, you're weird. We were not called to a church. We were called to the Lord. We were called to follow him, and Judas never did. And by the way, if you skip down and look at verse 18 of chapter 13, Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me, Psalm 41, verse nine. God knows the heart. Jesus knew what Judas was gonna do. We, we talked about that last week. Tragically, Judas was 
unclean. Peter, on the other hand, man, Peter wanted a bucket of water poured over his head. The coolest baptism that I've ever gotten to do was one that, that kind of shook me a little bit, shook my faith in, in how we baptize and, and how we accomplish this. I, did I tell you about this? I, I may have, but I'm gonna repeat it anyway just because it, it's such a cool story. When we were in Ghana and, and Mama Lottie brought the children from her, from her children's home, from her orphanage, over to the pool where we were staying one afternoon and, and then brought all the adults. They all wanted to be baptized too. So we ended up baptizing about 18 people there in the pool that afternoon. And one of them who really wanted to be baptized was a young man and he just, oh, he just had such joy on his face. He, he was um, mentally challenged. He, he was probably 15, 16 years old, but, but with the mentality of maybe a five or six-year-old. Sweetest guy in the world, and he so wanted to be baptized, but the pool management recognized that he had an open sore on his foot, and they would not let him get in the water. And he had to sit there, and I'm watching him, watching all of his little friends get baptized, and he couldn't. And, and Lottie said, is there anything we can do? He wants to be baptized so badly. And, and I'm, I'm having all kinds of crazy ideas. Maybe we stick his foot out onto the, you know, and, and we just dunk him backward and try and get him back out. I, I don't know what. We ended up having him sit in a chair. And I thought, okay, baptism. I've never sprinkled anybody baptism-wise in my life. I, I, you know, it's immersion. It's baptizo. Some of you might even go, Rick, you, you did wrong here. Well, you know, tough. So we got a five-gallon bucket, and we filled it to the brim and lifted that up and baptized him in the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, he was, he was baptizoed. He was immersed. <laughs> head to toe as he sat in that chair and he just laughed and, and just, he was so excited, you know, and that, that's it, it's that, it's that same, see, that's what I see in Peter. Not the mentally challenged part, Peter was a sharp guy, but, <laughs> but I see the part about just, not, not just my feet then, Lord, but just douse me from head to toe, cover me, I, I, I want all that you have to give me. And I'm sure Jesus had to smile at that, oh, Peter, now, you don't need that. I'll, I'll just do your feet. We're not here to make a mess. But Peter never forgot this. He never forgot. How do you know? Because he wrote about it. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, when he said, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the word he uses for clothe is literally to wrap around your waist, as in a towel. Peter later would say, wrap humility around your waist. No doubt thinking about Jesus wrapped in that towel, Jesus washing his own feet. To Peter, the clothing of humility looked like a towel. So spiritual cleansing was in play here. Jesus is exemplifying and portraying this in the very act of washing their feet. You don't have to be fully bathed again. That happened, but you need to wash your feet. The second thing we note here now is servant training. Servant training. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher. And Lord, and you're right, for I am. By the way, take the little word so out of your Bibles because it's not there. I think it's a little more powerful to hear Jesus just say it like it is, for I am. You call me teacher and Lord, rightly so. 
I am, I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Servant training. Jesus says, you are right, for I am, again, another subtle claim here in John to his true nature, that the Lord and the teacher is I am. But what has just happened, and the reason why Jesus has to do this on that night is that 12 lords filed into that room that night. 12 lords, one servant. 12 elites strolled right past the water pot and the towel and plopped down on their pillows and stuck out their feet and took a load off as their crusty, smelly feet were right in the face of the next guy at the table. I mean, this would be a gross thing to do. They're not even thinking about it. You would think that at least one of them would think, who's gonna wash our feet before dinner? I see the water pot there. There's the towel. We need... Is anybody gonna, you guys, can we share, maybe wash our, nobody even thinks about it. You you think anybody even had the notion in that moment of serving Rabbi Jesus and showing honor to him? They were too full of themselves in the moment. If you look down at verse 15, Jesus says, I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you, and here it is, servant training. You should do, Jesus says, as I did to you. If no act of service is beneath our Lord and teacher, what does that say about us? If no act of service is below Jesus and we follow Jesus, and I would hope that you would join me in saying we place ourselves below Jesus, but no act of service is below him, and we're below him, what does that say about our attitudes toward one another and in this world? It should tell us that nothing is beneath us. Nothing is beneath us. People read about the foot washing, and and some churches actually do this. They'll have foot washing ceremonies. We haven't at the bridge. I've had people come up and go, Rick, we really ought to do a foot washing ceremony. We could. There's nothing wrong with doing that. My daughter, Hannah, at her wedding, she washed Josiah's feet and he washed her feet and it was a really tender moment. But it's not our culture. Kind of weird culturally. I mean, should we put towels and basins at each one of the communion tables and then if you come forward and you're feeling particularly grimy, you slide off your feet and go, uh, less? Should we do this? Listen, symbolically, if you wanna do a foot washing, that's absolutely fine, but don't miss the point. The point is not in the action, it's not in making this a religious ritual. Here's the point. This was common bondservant practice in the culture. So if you wanna apply this to today, we just as well could pass out toilet brushes instead of a towel. Trash bags instead of basins. Man, I really want a foot washing ceremony. Here you go, right in there. (laughs) Scrub away, scrub to your heart's content. No, no, that's not what I want. I want to wash feet and have my feet be washed. Okay, then we're missing the point. One pastor put it this way. God trains us at the toilets and the trash cans. And if you're really good at those tasks, God is going to entrust you with people's lives 
And people's lives, when we're dealing with sin, are often related to toilets and trash cans. See, in the first century, filthy, dirty feet would be an obvious example of sin. And that's, you know, there it is. There's the muck and the mire right there, and so you can very easily see it. And foot washing as a common cultural thing, here's a way to serve someone who's a little filthy. In our culture, we don't do foot washing. Most of us have socks and shoes on our feet, except Jake, and I'm working with him on that. But <laughs> most of us don't think about the idea of foot washing as the example unless we make it a religious thing. Forget about religion. That, that's why I entitled this Towels, Trash Bags, and Toilet Brushes. I told my boys yesterday, Chris and David, I said, you know, you know what tomorrow's teaching is about? Towels, trash bags, and toilet brushes. And they're both like, what does that mean, Dad? <laughs> they're laughing, toilet brushes, that's awesome. I wanna hear it now. And I'm like, that's why I told you now. You can hear it tomorrow. <laughs> See, I do this at home too. You know why this is so significant? It's because sin is messy and dirty and sinners need cleansing. I mean, didn't you? Didn't you need that original cleansing to recognize that the blood of Jesus washes me clean of all transgression? And don't you, as we've been talking about, need that ongoing washing of your feet to be washed of the grime of the world, even stuff that you step in intentionally we need our feet to be washed, but we've gotten really good at cleaning the outside of the bowl. Whitewashing tombs. The whole point here in this servant training of Jesus is to exemplify a willing heart for the lowliest of service. Think about the lowliest of service in your household. Do that. The lowliest of service in a fellowship of believers. Do that. We could have a foot washing ceremony, but the idea is to serve in a low place. That puts a completely different spin, by the way, on what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. And we hear that, we go, oh yeah, I'm right back to Mary at the feet of Jesus. I'm right there reclining with the 12 at the Last Supper, listening to Jesus until I look, notice, I look down and realize my feet and the feet of everyone around the table are filthy. What am I gonna do? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. I know we come to Jesus for rest. I don't deny that we come to Jesus for rest, but my friends, a yoke indicates work. When Jesus says, take my yoke, there's still a work to be done. It's his work, not mine. It's a completely different work. It's a work that yields rest and satisfaction and peace like no other. It's a working alongside Jesus, but he says, come to me and work with me and you will have rest for your souls. I, you know, sometimes it, just going outside and mowing the lawn is restful for my soul. It, it's, it's work, you know, actually it's work, riding on the lawnmower. <laughs> but it's restful for the soul. I can just kind of lose myself in, in just cruising around the yard. The work's getting done, but the soul is at rest. And Jesus says, if you will work alongside me, if you'll take my yoke, my labor, my work upon you, you're gonna find rest in that. But he's inviting us to come to him and serve with him. Paul puts it this way, Philippians 2, verse five, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is to us. 
And here's the attitude, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of the bondservant being made in the likeness of men. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And Jesus got up from the table and Jesus washed their feet. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Verse 16. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You're blessed. Your makarios is the word, the same word he uses where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The beatitudes, the makarios, you're blessed. You're, it's not happy, it's, it's, a, it's an intrinsic joy and blessing and a sense of, of just satisfaction in the work. You're blessed if you know these things and do these things. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus has given us three pairings in this teaching, in this servant training. In verses 13 and 14, he gave us Lord and teacher to disciple. You call me teacher and Lord, and right you are. I am your Lord and teacher. So, so you're spot on in that. So the pairing there is Lord, teacher, rabbi to disciple. Then in verse 16, he gives the pairing of master to slave, and then at the end of verse 16, he gives the pairing of the one who sends to the sent one. And sent one, by the way, is apostolos. Is not the one who sends greater than the apostles, he says. And so he gives these amazing pairings. He is Lord, he is teacher, he is master, he is sender. What does that make me? Disciple, slave, and sent. That's me. I'm a follower, I'm a slave, and I am sent out by Jesus. But listen, again, if the Lord teacher, master sender knelt to this lowliest of station and was lifted up within hours to the place of highest shame, then there is nothing beneath the feet of the servant of Jesus. There's nothing beneath us. There's also nothing, by the way, that the world can hold over your head. You're already at the bottom. You're already serving at the feet. What can anyone say? What shame can someone pour on you when you are already at the bottom of the barrel serving with your sleeves rolled up and a towel around your waist? They can't say anything. And no amount of scorn can cut you down. You're already a bond slave. That's good news. Jesus says, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. You are blessed. Not you'll be blessed, do this and you'll be blessed. No, you're blessed as you're in the process of doing. The blessing is in the doing, the blessing is immediate. It's present active indicative. In other words, it's the continuous certain condition of the blessed life. You want a blessed life? See, I could have entitled this entire teaching, The Blessed Life. How to live the blessed life or maybe call it your blessed life now. And it's all about serving. And it's all about finding our position there and, and being blessed in it. Now, earlier, earlier I said that the word washes, washes our feet, keeps them cleansed. The spirit renews. We have this constant renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
But there's a third cleansing agent. There's just one more that we need to mention this morning, and it's a cleansing agent that keeps my feet clean along the way, and it is the single reason above all the others, be it the spiritual cleansing picture there or the servant training that he's exemplifying for them, more than those two, this is the third one. This is why this happened, why he washed their feet, and it is number three, sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Verse 34 in chapter 13. Skip all the way down and look at it. We'll come back and really dig into this Wednesday night. But he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, that's not a new commandment. That's as old as Torah. That's in the Hebrew scriptures, love one another. That's, that's just what they had always, it's not a new commandment, but he doesn't stop there. He says, a new commandment I give that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. This is not the love, well, this is the love spoken of in the Hebrew scripture, but not the love understood in the Hebrew scripture. This is now a new commandment because now the love is completely defined for us as sacrificial, as others first kind of a love. This additional love each other as I have loved you. Well, we know how he loves. He goes to the cross. We know how he loves. He's the one washing the feet. He's the one with towel around his waist. He's the one with nails in his hands and feet. Jesus, get this, Jesus loves by nature because that's who he is. God is love, the Bible says. Why does he wash their feet that night? It's very simple. He loved them. And for all the other things, the servant training, the spiritual cleansing, all the pictures that he paints here, he just loves them so much. And he says to them, follow me. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Translation. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere phileo love, Philadelphia love, brotherly love. You show brotherly love to each other. I think Peter could say this to us. We show friendship, love, brotherly love. We're, we're good hanging with each other that way. But Peter says, go on from that. Fervently love one another from the heart. Agapao, agape. Move out of brotherly love into unconditional love. That's why Jesus washed their feet. That's why Jesus donned the towel that night. That is a love that is sacrificial and others first. It's a love that washes feet. Now, just before this, very recently, Mary spontaneously anointed Jesus head to toe. As we talked about recently, she wiped then his feet clean six days before because Mary just loved him. There was one motivating factor for Mary on that, at that Sabbath meal six days earlier. She loved Jesus so much. Her heart was moved to anoint him for his burial, even if she didn't understand the burial part, remember. But by faith, she just loved and trusted him. And so she anointed his feet and dried them with her hair. Another woman showed a similarly tremendous love back in Luke chapter seven at the home of Simon the Pharisee. This sinful woman, as the Bible terms her, describes her, she crashes the party. 
She comes into the house. She falls down at the feet of Jesus and she wets his feet with her tears and begins to dry them with her hair and then anoint them with sweet perfume. And in Luke chapter seven, verse 44, turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon the Pharisee, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he turns to her and he says to her, your sins have been forgiven. Why? Because she loved much. She loved much. Look at the picture. Nothing was beneath this woman. Life had bottomed out for her. She was at the end of herself. To do what she did as a known sinful woman in this village to rush into the house of a Pharisee, you'd have to be almost insane. Especially when there's a visiting rabbi there, that Rabbi Yeshua, and she rushes in and falls down and she is weeping and clinging to her feet. And as she weeps, notices the dust on his feet turning into drops of mud as her tears are running down his feet. And she takes her hair and begins to dry them and then has a thought and grabs her perfume and begins to anoint his feet as she weeps before him. What an amazing picture. No embarrassment, no care for what anyone might think of her or her reputation. No fear of man, just love and repentance. That's all that was on her heart. Love of Jesus and repentance for where she had been and she washed his feet with her tears and by the way, she left the house clean. Clean and forgiven. In verse 17 again, Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. These things, it's everything we've talked about. If you understand now this experience of spiritual cleansing, the servant training that Jesus exemplified, the sacrificial love, if you understand this, you'll be blessed as you do these things. This is the Christian life in miniature. The washing of the disciples' feet, that is what we are called to do, and it is our life because it is the nature of God. One author called him the God of the towel. He's the God of the towel. This unsettling, shocking, amazing moment in the upper room at Passover is even more remarkable when you think about the fact that it parallels the incarnation of Jesus. Think about this. Verse four tells us Jesus got up from supper. Well, Jesus got up from his repose on his heavenly throne. Verse four continues saying Jesus laid aside his garments. Well, we know Jesus laid aside his glory. Verse four continues that he took a towel and girded himself with this. Well, you know that the word became flesh, that Jesus was wrapped in human flesh and humanity. In the story before us in John 13, verse five, he pours water into a basin to wash their feet. In the incarnation, Jesus poured out his blood to cleanse us from all sin. And what Jesus did, verse seven tells us it wasn't understood then, it would be understood after these things. Just as his first coming wasn't understood by most then, 
He wasn't received until after these things, after his resurrection. Verse 12 tells us that Jesus then took up his garments and reclined again, and that's what he did. He returned to glory and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It, it, it's, it's the incarnation. And was Jesus thinking this? Okay, I'm gonna do this really cool thing, but I need to do it in a way that it parallels my first coming so that when Rick is preaching about this 2,000 years later, he'll have something to do, you know? Or did he just do it because that's what Jesus does? The incarnation is just what God does. The washing of the disciples' feet, it's just what God does. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so going back to verse one, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Even if their feet stunk, even if they've been places that you wouldn't go, even if they've walked all over you, listen, we are called, like Jesus, to love people to the end, to the uttermost. English hymn writer Brian Wren wrote this song, Great God, in Christ you call our name and then receive it as your own. Not through some merit, right, or claim, but by your gracious love alone. We strain to glimpse your mercy seat and find you kneeling at our feet. You take the towel and break the bread and humble us and call us friends. And in verse three, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And that's the example. Do you know where you came from? See, Jesus knew where he came from. Where I came from is a very different place. Do you know where you came from? He came out of glory. We came out of sin. Do you know what the Father has given into your hands? Jesus had all authority. You know what we have? A towel or a toilet brush, or a trash bag. Do you know where you're going? Maybe that's the best question yet. Do you know where you're going? Just talking with Eva about this this morning. When I think about where we're going, not about where I am right now, not about the world and its current condition, as dirty and messed up as things are, when I think about where we're going and that promised kingdom out ahead of us, when I think about a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning and showing us what righteousness really looks like, when I think about a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem out beyond that, when I think about where I'm going, my mind is blown. I am encouraged. Give me a towel because this life is so short and we are going to a place prepared. And let that motivate our lives as, as people who are bondservants like our Lord Jesus I know where I'm going, and when I get there, there's one thing I wanna hear more than anything else in my life. I wanna hear him say, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus, I can't wait to be before you. 
but I don't want to be before you as one who has served his own passions, his own desires, his own selfishness. I want to hear you say, well done, good bondservant. Well done, faithful one. Father, I pray that we would look ahead of ourselves, that we would look to you and look to the promises out before us. And we would simply be then useful bond slaves, useful vessels in this world. Whether, Lord, we're serving here in the church fellowship or serving in our families at home, a husband serving a wife, a wife, a husband, kids serving their parents, serving the boss at work who really doesn't deserve our service, but we're gonna serve him anyway. Serving those around us who would just as soon walk all over us. Jesus, help us to have the mindset that nothing is beneath us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.